So, we are moving into the climatic final chapters of the book of Revelation. And as one commentator put it, the vision seemed to grow even more powerful and the language even stronger. Increasingly, we're going to see uh, the Lamb of God, our hero, King Jesus himself. And we're also going to have a look at his beautiful bride, the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, if you were with us over the last couple of weeks, chapter 17 and 18, we witnessed the overthrow of Babylon. By the end of chapter 18, we've seen that as a prostitute, uh, she's fallen, devoured, deserted, and as a city, because both images are used, she is burned, ruined, and silent. The world and worldliness will fail and fall. That's the message that John wants us to hear. But he's also telling us that this is not the end of the story. The best is yet to come for God's people. Here is doomed. That's what he's saying. Here will be literally burned up, condemned, and cursed. Our time here will end. Either we die or Jesus returns. And what we understand in these final chapters is that Jesus will come, and he will execute his judgment. He will create a new heaven and a new earth, and this will perfectly, this will perfectly be made for him and his people, his church. It will be perfectly made as an eternal home for his citizens. Now, can you even begin to imagine a place with no pain, no disappointments, no sickness, no inner battles, no failures, no sin, no temptation, no guilt. Can you even begin to imagine what a place like that will be like? So, in these last chapters, we are encouraged to believe that God rules, Jesus wins, keep going, don't compromise. Now, last week we noted um, that verse, verse 20 of uh, Revelation 18, rejoice over her, O heavens, rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. It's really a command. And what we have in chapter 19, verses 1 to 10, is the response of heaven and the church of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, basically, is the response. Praise the Lord. Praise be to Almighty God for what He's done. And, of course, even on top of all of that, we're going to be invited to a wedding feast. Isn't that wonderful? Have you ever been invited? Some of you are young here this evening. have never been to a wedding reception, perhaps. Well, let me tell you, you're going to be invited you have been invited. You are being invited. I hope you're going to be in the greatest wedding reception of all. And as a dad, you know, and I suppose I speak for Pauline too, don't need to organize it. That's a good thing. More importantly, don't need to pay for it. It's all going to be provided by God himself. So, the response to God's victory over the dragon and his beasts and the worldliness, exemplified by the mother of all prostitutes in Babylon, is praise. We have it, hallelujah, there, mentioned four times. Verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 6. You know what the strange thing is? This is the only time in the um, New Testament that the word hallelujah is actually recorded. It's the only time. 
But what we have here in chapter 19 is a kind of a, a concert of praise. Uh, and you can imagine, the, I suppose, the harmonies and, and the music. And what we see, of course, that this is the language of the Psalms. We, we might put it like this, the language of heaven is the language of the Psalms. That's why we start up with Psalm 111. By the way, that's why we normally start up a call to worship with a psalm, because the language of heaven is the language of the psalms. Praise the Lord. It's, it's actually hallelujah, but this is a, a transliteration of it. Hallel is praise. Yah is Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And it's the same in chapter, or Psalm 112, 113, 146, right through to 150. Praise the Lord. We praise the Lord because of who He is, because of His acts. And we praise the Lord because of who He is and what He does. So He is the, the God who is worthy of all our praise and all our, um, I suppose, our adoration. And when we study God, and when we know God, and when we love God, and when we trust God, we will break out in hallelujahs. Praise the Lord should be words that come from our lips on a regular basis. So we need to study the Bible. We need to know God. And when we do, the response will be, hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And as we study the Bible, and that's why we do this here, we, we just started chapter 1, verse 1, we work our way through books. Why? Because we're, we're coming into minefields of, of um, not minefields, gem fields of, of, well, yeah, mines. Yeah, we're looking for diamonds. And we find them all over the place. And when we do, when we pick one up and we see it and appreciate it, we should say, hallelujah. And tonight again, we're going to give, be given that opportunity. This is our duty, folks. This is our duty to search out the things of God, and to respond with praise. Let's be honest. Far too often we are so lazy, so lazy in our study of the Scriptures, so that our imaginations, our minds, are not filled with the things of God. We do not really understand the revelation of God. We do not really know God. And therefore, our praise is dull, it's boring. It's lifeless. And it should not be so. Because as God reveals himself to us, we should be crying out again and again, praise the Lord. Some things to notice about praising God in, in Revelation 19 before we get to the, um, the text. Um, I don't want to spend too long on this, but this is important, I think. It should be loud. Our praise should be loud. When there is a biblical love for God and a true fear of God, there's going to be great singing. Why? Because we're truly excited by Him, truly captivated by Him and excited by Him. We understand who He is. Notice the word um, roar there in verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven. And notice shouting. It's loud. It's loud. And same in verse 3, shouted. And verse 6, again, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and the, like loud peals of thunder, shouting, hallelujah. 
I can't sing terribly well, but one thing I can do is do it, whatever I do, I do it loudly, and gladly I do it loudly, because we should have a volume in our praise when we are excited about who we are praising. There should be no yawning or mumbling or dummy fluters. We should be praising him loudly. <laughs> Thanks, Gene. I'm sure that'll not be the first time you'll say that tonight, Gene. Also, it's not about me. It's about him. It's for him. It's of him. It's not for our enjoyment. This section, when we worship God in song and in praise, singing psalms and songs, um, it's about him. So, listen, I don't want to hear again, please do not say in my presence, I don't like that song. I don't like that tune. I don't like that instrument. Folks, it's not about you. And it's not about your preference. It's about him. It's about him. And it's for him. And let's remember that. We're so in love with Jesus, we want to praise him and we want to do it loudly. And it's also supposed to be expressive. Some of us are not very expressive. Men especially, I'm told, regularly. But with Jesus, we need to be expressive in our praise. We need to get over ourselves and stop making excuses for ourselves and express in words our love for and our trust in our God. Why is it that when it comes to talking about our football team, we can talk for hours? We can remember that match, that goal, those tactics. Or when we're talking about our grandchildren, or we're talking about the latest fad we've got ourselves into, we can talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Even if we, we, we go to one of these matches, we can stand in the crowds and we can sing at the top of our voice. You'll never walk alone, or things like that, or come on, ye spurs, or whatever it happens to be. But when it comes to um, when it comes to Jesus, we're less happy to do so. Now, notice it should be accurate as it is here in Revelation 19. We need to be careful with the content of our songs. And yes, if you're going to criticize a song, please criticize it, not because of the tempo um, or the instruments used. If there's theological errors in it, then yes, be. Condemn it. Criticize it. Because it should be accurate expression of who God is and what he wants to do. Hallelujah. That's what we want to do tonight. It should be loud. It should be expressive. Let's get to the text. I think there's two sections in this. God saving and judging, verses 1 to 5, and then um, God reigning and inviting, 6 to 10. Saving and judging. God is in the business of saving and judging. We know that, don't we? This is his constant work. And you'll notice there in verse 1 that he's perfect in these things, in salvation and glory and power. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. He is these things. That's what John sees 
And the Holy Spirit through John is telling us He owns these attributes. They belong to Him. Now, it's interesting that these are the things that Babylon would try and steal from God. Babylon worshiped false gods that cannot save. Salvation belongs to God alone. Babylon stole glory for herself. And what do we hear here in heaven? Glory belongs to God alone. Babylon ex- uh, exercised false power. And what are we told here? Power belongs to God alone. And then his judgments in verse 2 are true and just, for true and just are his judgments. He judges sin, and we'll see that particularly next week. He will judge the unsaved. Yes, he will, because judgments are true and just. He sees all things, and he knows all things, and his judgments therefore are perfect. Now, that's good news for harassed Christians, is it not? That's encouraging news for God's people in every generation who often have been mistreated and persecuted. And God says, my judgments are true and just. And God will judge the corrupter. We're going to spend a wee bit of time in verse 2 because I think it's important for true and just are his judgment, he has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted, set your eye on that word, corrupted the earth by her adulteries. The great prostitute corrupts the earth by her adulteries. This is very important because there are many in the world tonight and uh, some of you who are young enough and are going to be studying with them at, at school or uni, um, some of you work with them. Some of you may even live in the same home as them, and they will claim that uh, they're open-minded, they are unbiased, and they are tolerant. Do you hear that? We are the tolerant, liberal democracy in which we live. That's what we hear all the time. No, they are not. They are corrupted. They are corrupted. That's what's going on. Satan has an evil agenda corruption of our minds, corruption of our society, and all you've got to look around is to see this in operation. And so young and old alike need to know what's really going on. Those of you who are young tonight, let me warn you. The evil one wants to corrupt your mind. He wants to corrupt the way you think. He wants to corrupt the, corrupt the way you plan for the future. And you know what? It's a future without God, and it's a future without the gospel. That's what he wants. Corruption. But he has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. Don't get caught on the wrong side. Don't get caught on the wrong side. And, of course, he also will avenge his people. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. We don't need to avenge. That's why Christians don't need to take up arms. And we've got to be very careful the way we protest. He is big enough, strong enough, and good enough to do it. Hallelujah. What a Savior we have. He does these things and much, much more. Verse 3, we have another hallelujah. Um, 
Hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and forever. This speaks of that eternal and continual judgment. It's true and just. It goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. Remember who's in control and remember what the result is in the end. And then another hallelujah in verses 4 and 5. Um, the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, both small and great. So the servants of God who fear him will praise him for doing what is right, what is true, and what is just. So no wonder these folks in heaven are excited about our God. Here's a wee bit of application for this. When you feel tempted by evil, and when are you not tempted by evil? So the next time you're tempted by evil, the next time you feel charmed by sin, the next time you feel drawn to immorality, the next time you feel pulled by idolatry, remember, God saves his people, and God judges everything else, everything else. And if we go the way of the great prostitute, if we go the way of Babylon, we'll only regret it, and we will regret it eternally. God saves, and God judges. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The second thing we want to say is that God reigns and invites We see him reigning and inviting, just as we see him saving and judging. This is 6 to 10. And in verse 6, we see something that's very, very encouraging, I think. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. He reigns over us. That's why we rightly pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He rules and he reigns, and therefore we should rejoice and be glad in that for his ruling and his reigning. Now, this is something to look forward to. Um, Somebody is going to rule us and reign us properly. Isn't that something to look forward to? Uh, As I was writing a sermon on Thursday, I um, I was up for lunch and was um, watching the news, and I saw um, a little clip from a guy called Ian Austin. I don't know if you saw it or not. He's a former labor minister, and this is what he said. He's a labor, a former labor minister, and this is what he said. Jeremy Corbyn is completely unfit to lead our country. Did, Did anybody see that? Completely unfit to lead our country. I said, wow. Then I thought to myself, is there anyone out there much better than him? And the answer is, probably not. Boris? Who is fit to lead our country? There's nobody out there. There's nothing out there. Why? Because only our God can reign us. And that's the promise that one day we will be under the reigning and ruling power of somebody who's fit to do it. One day, there will be an end to incompetent, unworthy, unqualified government. That's how one commentator put it. An end to incompetent, unworthy, unqualified government. One day, there will be an end to God's world being destroyed 
by those who can't rule it. Hallelujah. What a God he is. Only he is fit to reign. And then he weds us, verse uh, 7. Let's read it. For our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Now, there were three phases of ancient weddings. I'm sure some, if not all of us, will be familiar with this. Very often you could be pledged to be married at a very young age. This was arranged, normally between families. And then later on, when, I suppose, the bride or the groom got to a certain age, they were betrothed. It was like an engagement, although much firmer than it would be seen today. And then the third part would be the marriage feast, the actual marriage, the coming together to be husband and wife. Well, the last part is in mind here, because what we have had is that the groom, Jesus, came from his home, as he would have done back in those days. He came to us on earth, and he paid the dowry, which again would have been a common thing to have happened. His dowry, of course, was his very life. And then he went back to his home in heaven. And now he awaits the marriage feast of the Lamb. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we are waiting for. That's what he is waiting for. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. What a wedding. What a day. Now, James Hamilton, uh, in one of his, he writes one of the commentaries. I wouldn't agree with everything that he says about the book of Revelation by far, but this bit, I thought, it was so good, I had to read it out to you. It's long, so bear with me. I need to take a wee sip here. We can scarcely imagine the glory of that wedding day. Never has there been a more worthy bridegroom. Never has a man sacrificed more for his beloved. Never has a man gone to greater lengths, humbled himself more, endured more, or accomplished more in the great task of winning his bride. Never has a father more generously planned a bigger feast. Never has a more noble son honored his father in everything. Never has a man treated his bride-to-be more appropriately. Never has a more powerful pledge, like an engagement ring, been given than the pledge of the Holy Spirit given to his bride. Never has a more glorious residence been prepared as a dwelling place once the bridegroom finally takes his bride. Never has a bridegroom, I'm only halfway through, never has a bridegroom done more to qualify his beloved to be his bride. Never has a bride needed her bridegroom more. Never has there been a wedding more significant than this one. Never has a prince with more authority taken a bride with less standing. Never has a bride had her prince die for her, rise from the dead for her, and to give her his own standing before the Father. Never has a bridegroom loved his bride more. Never has a bride waited as long for her bridegroom. Never has a bride sung more songs to her beloved. Never has there been a wedding with more guests than this one will have. Never 
has a wedding taken place with, on a more momentous occasion. Never has there been a marriage like this one. Hallelujah. Our God is great. And guess what? He closed us for this wedding. Verse 8. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Where she made herself ready, you'll see, verse 7. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Ready. The bride is ready. You notice that? Back in chapter 7. I think that's the wrong verse. I don't think it's verse 8. I think it's verse 14, actually. It makes reference to our salvation and the salvation robes. Because this reference here in chapter 19 and verse 8 is not about salvation by works, okay? There's some controversy about this. That's why I want to stop for a moment and look at it. It's not about justification. It's actually about sanctification, about the process of holiness. It's very, we need to be so clear about this. Back in chapter 7 is, I suppose, the reference to um, salvation and coming to faith by justification. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Here in chapter 19, we're talking about holy living in response to that. Our royal garments of fine linen, fit for the wedding feast of the Lamb, are made bright and clean. Notice those two words, bright and clean, verse 8, as we live out the righteous acts of the faith as they're laid out for us in Scripture. And I suppose we, we might say um, that, that that's what we need to hold on to. These two different times when these robes are mentioned. And I suppose to to try and help explain this, we can go to Ephesians 2. Because in Ephesians 2, we have, in a sense, both these situations. I'll put them up there. Verse 8 and 9, first of all, and then verse 10. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This, in a sense, is the fact we're saved by grace through faith. It's, this is the part where we become the bride of Christ. He gives us the wedding dress, which Revelation 7 mentions, a, a white dress washed in the blood of the Lamb, his own blood. But what makes the white linen bright and clean, and I think those are the two key words, bright and clean, is how we live out the righteous act of faith. And that's why verse 10 of Ephesians 2 is so important. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see that? So we are saved and given royal robes fit for a wedding day. But what makes them bright and clean is these righteous acts that we do in response to God's saving us. We're not saved by good deeds, but after we're saved, we do good deeds, or we're expected to do good deeds, prepared in advance for us to do. So how? How do we make sure 
This fine linen we've been given is bright and clean rather than dull and dirty. Well, it's these righteous acts. That's what it says. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. So, generosity, for instance, not greed. Purity, not lust. Zeal for prayer and evangelism, not laziness. Maturity, not childishness. Patience, not anger. Service, not selfishness. The list is endless, isn't it? Acts of righteousness, which God has prepared in advance for me and you to do. Start dressing now, folks. Start dressing now. Be ready. The bride has made herself ready. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Bright and clean linen. Holy living. Obedience to the call to do the good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. It was a good question that used to be asked more in the past. And there was a question whether I should do this or not, but here we are. We're going to do it. Too late now. I think it's mighty relevant to this passage. And the question goes a wee bit like this. If everyone was as holy as I am, how holy would our church be? Think about that. That's frightening for me. If everyone served as much as I served, how much service would our church provide for God's people and for God's world? Think of other righteous acts. Think of prayer, for instance. If everyone in the church prayed as much as I prayed, how much prayer would actually go up? Or giving? Or evangelism? Or loyalty? Folks, do you want clean and bright garments for that day? Well, you're told. I fear that some, maybe many, want to be part of the bride. Oh, yeah, they want to be part of the bride. But they don't want to have bright and clean linen garments. I think many people want to be part of the bride, but don't want to live out the righteous acts of the faith. For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. We're to be ready. We're to be ready. Let's be ready. Verse 9, he... um, he um, blesses us. We are invited. Oh, we are invited. Isn't that great? Verse 9. Then the angel said to me, Write, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. We are invited. And so we're truly blessed. He blesses us. Jesus is all we need. And Jesus is enough. 
And the wonder, therefore, the excitement of verse 9. No matter what you've got to face, and I know some of you are facing a challenging future, and we want to be beside you to help you, but you know what? The greatest person is Jesus. And you know what he's promised you? That he's invited you to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So sickness, loneliness, persecution, disappointment, unemployment. We have been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Don't miss out on that. You know, in a congregation like this, we, we, we know there, there are some here who are not yet saved. Let me say, God's people are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb, the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's a picture of the glory of heaven. And they will be there. But if you're not in Christ, you will not be there. You cannot be there. You won't have those linen robes that he gives to his people, washed in his very blood. You cannot get to this wedding until you're saved. And so I invite you to come to Christ and his salvation if you have not already done so. And the reason, by the way, those of us who have been made ready the reason why we have been ready is we've come to Christ. And so I invite those who have not yet come to Christ. If God is speaking to you, then believe and receive. Verse 10, he demands pure worship. This is the last verse. At this, I fell at his feet to worship him. He is filled with hallelujah, praise the Lord, worship. But he said to me, do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God for the testimony of Jesus' spirit of prophecy. John was getting really excited, and he, he was going to worship the angel. Uh-uh, no, no, no. Don't do that, John. Don't worship man. Don't worship angels. Worship is for God alone. Anyway, we've got to get to our conclusion. What a fabulous story here we have in this chapter for us to receive and believe. But I want to finish by pointing out something that was taught to me many, many, many years ago when I was a wee boy, and I never forgot it. The Bible begins and ends with a meal. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve ate a meal without God, and in disobedience to God, they ate the forbidden fruit, and the curse of God fell upon the whole of creation. Genesis 3, Revelation 19 the marriage feast of the Lamb. For all God's redeemed people, a meal with God. The guests already we've mentioned, too many to count. A reception that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And it's the wedding of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to his bride, the church. It's going to be the last wedding ever and it's going to be better than yours. It's going to be the best one ever. The best is kept for last. And in doing so, this picture that's painted for us here, 
is to encourage us to keep going and don't compromise and don't let the prostitutes seduce you away and don't let Babylon persecute you away from the Lamb. Because if we choose Babylon, we lose everything. We, we lose joy, peace, love, freedom, purpose, and we will lose what we were made for, knowing and hallelujah worshiping of God. Not being part of the bride of Christ is serious. Not being part of the marriage feast of the Lamb is serious. So the invitation has gone out again. I ask you once again, are you going to be there? For those of us who are Christians, this is extremely comforting, is it not? We're in the winning team. Evil and sin will be defeated. So, brother and sister, remain faithful and be ready. The robes have been provided by Jesus, washed in his very blood. And he's called us, as we wait, to acts of righteousness. Let's encourage each other to keep going. Let's encourage each other to not compromise. So by your example, by your words, by your actions, encourage others to keep going, not compromise. We don't have the luxury of being selfish or lazy. We live for him. We live for his praise. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together.